Well, our series right now is revolving around um, this theme of Eastertide or the season of Eastertide, which is perennially for the church. It's an archetype. It's an archetype for the experience that we've talked a lot about around here through the years, the experience of deconstruction and reconstruction. Um, this is, oh, by the way, kids, y'all can be dismissed. Run if you would like. All the, all the kids can be dismissed. But this was a space um, that really is such a, a wonderful working archetype for those who go through what we know as religious deconstruction. And I suppose the process of deconstruction, whether it's religious, political, or on any level, is a, is a normal part of life. In psychology, it's called differentiation. Um, you differentiate and you individuate, you wean, and you begin to find your own answers. Um, and so we have a lot of archetypes in scripture for that particular thing. The book of Psalms, if any of you know the Old Testament theologian, uh, the Hebrew theologian Walter Brueggemann, I would encourage you, if you're looking for a good devotional book, get Walter Brueggemann's book on the Psalms, his commentary on the Psalms. Brueggemann's one of my favorites. But in the Psalms, Brueggemann says that the entire Psalms are, the book of Psalms is really an archetype for this process of naive construction, which we all go through, deconstruction, and then reconstruction. Uh, I think Brueggemann calls it naive orientation. He might not use the word naive, but orientation, disorientation, and then reorientation. And Brueggemann points out how all of the Psalms kind of flow through that rhythm. And you can almost, I mean, the Psalms are, can be categorized in a lot of different ways. But since I read Brueggemann's book years ago, I always categorize the Psalms just subconsciously as either a Psalm of orientation, a Psalm of disorientation, or a Psalm of reorientation. Three different phases in David's life. And not necessarily three phases that you run through consecutively in one time, but you might revolve through these over and again in your life. Uh, Brueggemann points out, no, he didn't point this out. I saw this when I was reading through the Psalms one time. And Psalm 21, 22, and 23 just kind of naturally follow that rhythm. If you read Psalm 21, it's from the youthful life of a young man named David. A young man who had Pollyannic visions of what Israel could be. Um, his life was star-crossed to some extent. He was a profound young shepherd boy. He had killed a lion and a bear. He had stood before Goliath in the ancient story. He kind of had a star-crossed life. He was a, he was a child star of religious sorts. And in Psalm 21, when you read it, uh, you really hear that almost Pollyannic vision of a world that is exactly right. Good people prosper, bad people suffer. Good kings endure, bad kings are taken down, and life goes the way it should go with all justice and equanimity. And then Psalm 22, you almost get whiplash when you go into Psalm 22 because Psalm 22 immediately, and you might recognize this from the mouth of Jesus years later, Jesus quoted Psalm 22. One of the reasons we hide sacred scripture in our heart because sometimes when you most need it, it comes out even gutturally. Psalm 22 verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And so the dreams and the ideals of his youthful life had been affronted. He had had the oil poured over his head by Samuel and he was to be the next king. And instead of just this slick transition to the throne, he spent 20 years on the run from Saul. At least many years, may not have been 20, but a lot of years on the run from Saul. And hungry, uh, discouraged, disappointed. A couple of times even had the chance to take Saul's life, but Saul had been such a hero in his mind that he couldn't do it. Stood over him while he slept and knew that he could not touch the anointed of the Lord, even though this anointed one was torturing him. And in those years on the run, perhaps in the cave of Agilom, where he often grieved and bemoaned his state, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which again, Jesus lamented from the cross those same words. And then Psalm 23, a psalm that evidently came from his later years, reflective years. He had made it through what psychologists called the first naivete into that painful season of Knowing too much, cynicism, bitterness, resentment, wondering if you will ever recapture a positive imagination again for the world. Through first naivete, cynicism, and then if your soul is wise, it recaptures what's called the second naivete. It's not childishness, but it is what Jesus called childlikeness, and there is a difference. You feel the nuanced difference. Childishness is that first naivete that doesn't know all of the questions. Second naivete is a childlikeness that recaptures the vision of what could be and allows it, Stephen, to heal the cynicism and does not give up on hope. You remember Joni Mitchell's beautiful song. How she wrote it at 21, I don't know. But I never enjoyed listening to her stand up there with her daisy dress and guitar, Steve, and sing, sing it. But man, after she'd smoked three pack of camel for about 40 years every day and lived through some life and had a stroke and a broken heart, the song was called Both Sides Now. If you hadn't listened to this classic song, Both Sides Now, listen to it. Moons and Junes and Ferris wheels, that dizzy dancing way that you feel. I've looked at clouds that way, but now they only block the sun, they rain and snow on everyone. I've looked at clouds that way. The entire song is about first naivete, cynicism, and then finally the resolve is, I've looked at love from both sides now, from up and down, but still somehow. It's love's illusions, I recall. I still don't know love at all. That return to the glimmer in the eye yet a glimmer well aware peripherally of the questions and the struggles. So Brueggemann points out that there's, dis, there's orientation, first naivete, there's disorientation, cynicism and question, and then there's, again, hopefully, a transition and a graduation into second naivete and reorientation. And man, when you listen to Psalm 21, everything's great with the world. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 23, listen to it, and you'll hear a mix. Not the cynicism, the biting cynicism of Psalm 22, but an awareness of the realities that force Psalm 22. 
Not the Pollyannic vision of Psalm 21, but still a hope and a belief that things could be well and justice could, on a long arc, be attained. The Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> I shall not want. He does make me to lie down in the green pastures of Psalm 21. He does lead me beside their still waters. He restores my soul there. But he also leads me through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 22. He also prepares a table before me, Psalm 21, but it's in the presence of my enemy, Psalm 22. And surely I will, I will return with all the questions in tow, with all the biting bitterness trying still to lift its ugly head in my heart. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That resolve. Isn't that lovely? The Eastertide season is a season of Psalm 22. It is a season of disorientation where everything a group of people devoted to Jesus thought they knew about Jesus was overturned. It was upset. It was scrambled. And then the resurrection happens. And beautifully, the resurrection does not immediately result in a Pentecost where the Spirit outpours and theologically there is, and practically there is the resolve that we become the body of Christ. I think it's just lovely that instead there was this 40-day season where Jesus came in and out of their life and ministered to their disorientation and didn't try to immediately resolve all of the questions and struggles of disorientation with second naivetes and reorientation do not generally come through an epiphany here or there. They generally are, they are generally the product of healing processes, therapeutic processes. And Jesus gave himself to that 40-day period. So I've been talking about all those folk and some of the things that they battled that caused disorientation and, 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 and the ways that Jesus ministered to their disorientation and how they moved toward the resolve of orientation. And I just want to say sympathetically and hopefully, I... I started out as a young child in a very sincere but uber-fundamentalist faith. And it was so fundamentalist, it was such a caricature of fundamentalism that the decent brain that God had given me and the good heart that God had given me immediately began to question those things that were preached as mandates to me. And that was a gift to me. It was also a curse because it set me on a path of deconstruction and that's the blessing. Uh, Sometimes the curse of deconstruction is an inertia builds up in critical thinking and deconstruction and you move your entire spirituality into your head. And I spent a good 30 years as a cerebral, intellectual explorer who was taking care of my own soul, always critiquing and coming up against the questions of faith that were not resolvable and answerable. And I did that for years, and I took people through it, and that really has been the chief lot of my ministry. Only in the last couple of years have I begun to settle into what, for me, feels like a peaceful, livable faith. I, honest to goodness, this is not my ministry side. As a human being, it has only been in the last couple of years that I have begun to move into what I consider to be a workable faith, things that I actually trust, not things I'm exploring. I've moved from being this laboratory clinician to uh, a resolve that some of these things actually work in life and, and it's been a very peaceful time and I have moved 
I was in deconstruction and disorientation so long that I thought I would never. For those of you who are in deconstruction, hear me. I was in deconstruction and disorientation so long I thought it would be my lot in life forever. I never thought I would come to the place of peacefulness now. Even people around me know that I'm far more peaceful than I used to be. And I can, I can, I can really just give the credit to just this process that I've been through. And though I thought disorientation and second naivete and re, I, I thought it would never end, rather, though reorientation I thought would never come, I've been thinking lately, it's here and I don't even know when it came, Lee. It just kind of slipped up on me. I thought after 30 years there would be like a funeral and a big death and a long hospice for this disorientation and it would just be such a marker I'd want to preach about it. And the other day I was just thinking, Steve, it's here. I'm peaceful. I believe. I trust. I've kind of taken my faith to the borders of the continent called Christianity and my toes slid right over the edge and it was like the big sur. I could see the pebbles falling a thousand feet down to the water. And as a pluralist and inclusivist, I looked out at the vast ocean and I knew there were other continents out there, but the continent of Christianity was one that felt vast and spacious and like a homeland to me. And I certainly will explore and delve into other things and experience other things, but my home is here. And uh, you can be a world explorer, but home is where you come home to wash your shorts and watch your kids play ball. So reorientation can happen. So hang in there for you, those of you who are deconstructed and desperately wanting to find a faith again. Sometimes you even look back at the fundamentalism you grew up in that had all of the answers and you know those answers don't satisfy, but don't you miss the certainty? Don't you miss when you just had it resolved? Don't chicken out in the process and go back to that. You would be unfaithful to your soul. Hang in there. Deconstruction is like a riptide. If you fight it, it will drown you. Roll over on your back, trust grace. It'll take you out to where you're going, and then you can swim over a few yards and come back to shore. Or it might just take you to a new island. I can't decide for you what your journey is. But I saw something this week I wanted to share with you, and I don't know if it'll be as good to you as it is to me. But it really powerfully hit me, and I do not believe that I'm making too much out of this. And the more Jewish I get in my roots, and the more committed I am to Midrash, the more I know you really can't make too much out of Scripture. Whew, the uh, first couple of thousand years of, of Christianity, we really lost our Jewish roots on how to study the Bible. And one of the key things that we lost that is so key to the principle of how Scripture was constructed from our Jewish roots uh, is, is you're supposed to bring imagination to the text. You're supposed to bring creativity to the text. You're supposed to stretch the text and stretch your heart. And you really can't do too much with the text because you'll never completely exhaust it. And every culture, every context, every era, and every soul actually offers the text a new way to come alive. And, and so this week I was reading a text and it came alive to me in a new way. And I just, I'm going to read it to you. I didn't give the scriptures. We're just going to act like old time and let the preacher read out of the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Mark, the 16th chapter. 
Oh boy, this is getting awful. My arm's not long enough. Um, mm. Very early on the first day of the week, Mark 16, verse 9. Very early on the first day of the week, after Jesus had risen to life, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. I'm reading from the contemporary English version. People always say, of all the translations, when you're studying for your sermon, how do you know which translation to read from? That is very simple. The one that makes my point for me the best. <laughs> Least I admit it. And actually, that's not bad hermeneutics either, but that's for another time. Very early on the first day of the week, after Jesus had risen to life, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. Earlier, he had forced seven demons out of her. She left and told his friends who were crying and mourning. Okay. So what I just did is like one of the high points of my life. I am a person whose entire life and ministry has been set up and I'm so satisfied with it now, I am a person who had Jesus, lost Jesus, and then refound him, and gets to go to the other people who lost him and say, I just saw him. And that's enough for me for the rest of my life. Because Christianity is a big group of people, and Christianity has some severe growing pains, and our growing pains are so severe as we face down some of our own demons, it's causing lots of people to lose Jesus. And I think that's sad. And so I get to be her. She was sad. She had Jesus. She lost Jesus. She was sad. She meets Jesus. She goes and tells other people who've lost Jesus and are sad that she saw Jesus. That's the story. Now watch this. So she left and told his friends, the friends that were crying and mourning just like she had been. Even though they heard that Jesus was alive, and man, I've been facing this for years. Even though they heard that Jesus was alive and that Mary had seen him, they refused to believe it. Now, I've been reading that for years. And I never felt the import and the impact of that last line. They refused to believe it looking at different translations in my octoglot that has eight translations they uh, they would not believe they refused to believe they simply could not bring themselves to believe so she who had lost Jesus had a real experience with Jesus and I'll tell you about real experiences you know you've had a real experience when you just feel like you have to share it. Uh, like the uh, homeless fellow on the streets of, uh, I think it was Philadelphia, that offered Tony Campolo a cup of coffee. And Tony said he had a long beard with remnants, you know, mental illness racking his life, bits of food in the beard, probably hadn't bathed in years, and 102 degrees on the streets of Philadelphia one summer day. The old man was sweating and bumped into Tony and looked at him and said, would you like a drink of my coffee? 
Tony said no, no thank you, and slipped him a $20 bill and walked down the street. And he said he got about 30 feet down the street and something said, you hypocrite. The man tried to give you something, and you resolved it by giving him something. Selfish. Because it is more blessed to give than receive, because you stay in control that way. You don't admit need that way. The man tried to give you something, and you bought your way out of needing anything from anybody. Tony said, I turned around busy street to go find him. And he said, when I turned around to go hustle through the crowd and find him, he was standing there staring at me. The writer of Hebrews said, be really careful because sometime you will entertain angels unaware. And Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. So here's the good news. Even if it's not an angel, it's always Jesus. Tony said, I went back to him and he said, I said, hey, buddy, that was nice of you to offer me your coffee. I think I will take a drink. He took the drink of coffee. He looked at the fellow and said, what made you so nice today? And the guy looked at him and through the insanity, the illness, the weather and the layer of years on the street, with clarity, divine clarity, he looked at Tony and smiled and said, the coffee at McDonald's was especially good this morning and God has taught me when you have anything especially good, you need to share it. We could just go home now, couldn't we? She had to tell it because real experiences have to be shared. And the Bible is very clear, they refuse to believe. And I'll tell you what else the Bible is clear about, and boy, this is, this is a midlife lesson. When they refuse to believe her experience, she did not argue with them or try to force her experience on them. It is not our responsibility to impose our experiences on others. It's not our experiences to argue them into believing them. It's not our obligation to debate, to force, to impose. It is simply our obligation to share. And when you've shared your experience with strength, your experience of strength and hope and love, you just leave it. Because it's now in their lap, gift or not, it's in their lap and they'll do with it what their soul's going to do with it. Let people take their journeys. And so she had to tell it, they refused to believe it, and she decided that she wouldn't argue or force it. And I got to thinking about those people who refused to believe it. The thing they had longed most for when it was offered, they refused to believe it. Now let's think about us a little bit. The thing they had been wanting for so long, when it was handed to them on a platter, Scripture said they just would not believe it. You know, if the Scripture would have only said they didn't believe, then I would have just moved on. There's a lot of those stories. They just didn't believe. Jesus did something, Jesus said something, something happened, and... Bible says they just didn't believe. But I can't get past this one. This is, this is for that tradition called Lectio Divina is really good. I wasn't looking for a message this week. Lectio Divina is where you open the text and you don't try to get through the Bible in a year. You just read verses till it speaks to you and then stop. If it's in the middle of a verse, stop. 
and hear the word of the Lord. And that's what happened to me with this. These words, this one word, refused, just had like neon lights around it. It wasn't that they didn't believe, it was that they refused to believe. And, and right before they refused to believe, I think there's this little telling piece. They were described as people who were mourning and crying because Jesus was gone. And when Mary gave them the answer, have you ever been so hurt? Have you ever been so hurt by loss that you closed your heart to love? Have you ever been so hurt by life that you closed your heart to faith? Have you ever been so gut-punched by abuse that when love and faith and hope and life and all the things that you've lost, all the things that you're crying, the, that you're crying in response to the absence of, have you ever been so hurt that when they circle back around by grace and stand before you, that you say, no. Not again. I, I think to some degree we all have, and I do not want to misquote the Buddha, but I think this is what the Buddha was getting to when the Buddha said, whoever has 50 loves has 50 woes, and whoever has 10 loves has 10 woes, and whoever has lo one love has one woe. Because to open yourself up to love is to open yourself up to not just the mountain of its exalted status, but it is to open yourself up to the valley of its devastating absence. I remember living four miles down a gravel road outside of Paragould, Arkansas. Uh, our, our little gravel road a long way from the pavement was a good place for people to and I saw them do it my whole life. They would just open up their car, sometime not even stopping, and just dump a little dog or cat out. And always out there in the country, we, my family was poor. We didn't have money to buy dog food, but I was always saving food and scraps, trying to feed some stray that came along. And one little stray looked just like Benji, that old 70s Disney dog. It looked just like Benji. One little dog captured my heart, and I had him for years until he died. But I remember when I got him, he evidently had been so abused that I couldn't touch him. And boy, that if you love animals, that just draws you in. And I spent, I don't know, I spent six months trying to coax that dog into a loving, trusting relationship with me. And I guess I had him another eight years till he died. And I can tell you one way to describe our eight years together was that he flinched less every day. Somebody asked me one time when I was telling that story, they, they said, did he ever stop flinching? And I thought to myself, as far as you could tell, he did. But Kenny, when, I would, when he was dying, after eight years of my love, when I... I'm such a sap. I don't know. I'm just, I'm a, a sap, but 
I'd reached to pet that little feller. Last time I reached to pet him, he didn't, he didn't flinch where you could see it. But to the day he died, when you'd reached to pet him, he, he, when I reached to pet him, he would still gently close his eyes. We all develop mechanisms because we are shot. Oh, that creation myth of ours is so brilliant that we, we, we took from our Jewish forebears. We are shot into this world with a zest and a wanderlust and a thirst for life. We are shot into this world with Edenic desires and we immediately realize, pretty quickly we realize that we live in a non-Edenic world. We live east of Eden with Edenic desires. We, we want love more than we can give love. We want the ideal. We have a heavenly vision and a human capacity. And, and it sets us up for these imperfect exchanges of faith and these imperfect exchanges of hope and these imperfect exchanges of love. And they are titillating on one hand and on other hands, the resistance causes blisters and the blisters hurt and our souls get blistered and generally the souls get blistered because you know I mean it's just like a foot the, the part of you that you don't use very often and very well you overuse it because you're doing something you enjoy so much only to find out later that your foot didn't have the capacity for it the skin the epidermis the uh, the subcutaneous tissue did not have the capacity for it and you get a blister and the blister hurts and you wonder if the blister was worth the game. And, and the thing about blisters, if you don't really take care of them with the lotion of grace, blisters develop calluses. You know, you hear people talk about, oh, he's got a calloused heart. Well, there's another way of looking at that, isn't there? It's like people say, well, he's just a chameleon. Well, what, what do you mean he's a chameleon? What is a chameleon? A chameleon is one of those things that can change colors to, to do what? To fool everybody? To be evil? No, why does a chameleon change colors? To survive. And, and shot into a non-Edenic world with Edenic desires, we are shot with a zest for life. And if we're not careful, we end up surviving instead. And survival mechanisms are much different than living mechanisms, aren't they? And we get blisters on our soul. And blisters are painful. And one of the ways that we resolve blisters is by replacing blisters. I mean, who wants to live with blisters, right? Who wants to be that raw? Who wants to have that many nerve endings exposed to life? Who wants that? And, and so the response to our blisters and our bankruptcies and our broken places and our divorces, the the possibility is when faith is gone, our losses, our crucifixions, our deaths, the response to these blisters that pain our soul is to do what? Callous those same areas where there was tenderness. I mean, think about the extreme. The heightened exposure that a blister yields, we replace it with a callus. And what is a callus? It's dead. Nerves can't communicate through it. Calluses are survival mechanisms. They are not living. There are no nerves in them.
You endure. You don't enjoy. But some people have had so many blisters that calluses don't seem so bad. But I thought about what the Buddha said, and I'll tell you why I love Buddhism but love Christianity more. And maybe it's just because I don't know where the Buddha resolved it. But the Buddha, speaking to the attachment and detachment, said, he who has love has woe. And when he said, he who has lo one love has one woe, and then when he said, he who has no love has no woe, I thought, yeah, but. And I can almost guarantee if I knew Buddhism better, um, I think the Buddha resolves in a better place, but I can guarantee you Jesus resolves in a better place. Because to that calloused heart, no, no, to that blistered soul who says never again, never again, I am headed into the world of calluses, brother. Jesus said, I understand. Because love brings woe. But a fellow who was called the beloved of Jesus, in his epistle, in 1 John 3, he said, I want to tell you something. Whoever hates their brother and sister is guilty of murder. You say, well, what's that have to do with this? Well, just listen. Whoever hates their brother or sister, you're guilty of murder. But the verse right before that is far more compelling and relevant to what I'm saying today. He said, okay, obviously, if you exact hate, it's like murder. But he said there's a passive, there's a passive killer too. The verse before he said, and whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever does not love, now whoever hates, they kill the other. But whoever opts out of love, they end up killing themselves. Whoever, for fear of woe, says, I'm just not going to love anymore. I'm not going to love and I'm not going to open myself to love. They abide in death. So hate is tantamount to murder. Love is tantamount to life. And choosing not to hate but not to love is tantamount to taking your own life. What John is saying is, the truth is, dear hurt one, you can protect yourself to death. You can protect yourself right out of life. They looked at her and they refused to believe. That means they had to refuse something. They knew what belief was, they knew what the loss of it was, and in the middle of their tears, she offered them the return, and they must have had something well up inside of them, and they leaned in, and just about the time they were going to say, they said, no, thank you. They felt themselves believing. See, I know they believed because they had it to refuse. They believed, and as they felt that come swelling up again, they said, ah, it's too good to be true. 
And I'm not setting myself up for that again. So what I'm saying is all of this Eastertide stuff, just like this incident, is not about faith in God. It's not just about the strict idea of believing. It's not even about their mistrust or lack of confidence in Mary Magdalene, which a lot of time I ascribe this to. Well, she was a woman. And that's good midrash. Maybe that was the case. They refused because she was a woman. But this seems to make me think it wasn't about their mistrust of Mary Magdalene. It was the story of bruised souls saying, I am not going through that again. I cannot put all of my hopes and dreams into something or someone that is not sure, at least more sure than a secondhand report. And I, I get that. I was looking at the next verses here. The next verses, verse 12 says, Later Jesus appeared in another form to two disciples as they were on their way out of the city. But when these disciples were told what had happened, uh, but when these disciples told what had happened to the others, the others still would not believe. And then afterwards, verse 14, Jesus finally appeared to his 11 disciples as they were eating and he took them to task because they were too stubborn to believe the ones who had seen him after he had been raised to life. Ooh, stubbornness. That's a part of calluses. He scolded their stubbornness to believe. Uh, the New American Standard actually breaks down stubbornness. Listen, listen to it this way, spiritual stubbornness. Here's the way it breaks it down. The New American Standard says... He scolded them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. And I've always heard that phrase, hardness of heart, as some, I don't know, borderline, insidious, almost evil thing. You know, people who harden their heart. These unbelievers who harden their heart. I've always thought that that was, you know, just talking about those bad people who, for whatever reason, just are so bad, they just want to be bad. So they got hard hearts. But this group that he's talking to loved him, lost him, were crying for loss of him, were told he was back, refused to believe it, and when he finally shows up and says, I need to talk to you. This is not good what you've been doing. You didn't believe because you let your hearts get hard. And Dave, I thought, calluses. This is not a calcification that comes from evil. This is a hardness that comes from calluses. How does a soul get calloused? How does a person close themselves off from love and from faith and from others? And even in this case, I'm not trying to be your relationship counselor. I'm really talking about God here. That's kind of my forte. I live my life with people exiting the Christian church who have just closed themselves off from God. And I just can't help but think that there's too much throwing the baby out with the bathwater. 
how do people harden their heart toward Jesus? How do people harden their heart toward God? This story actually says it actually doesn't take that long. It, it doesn't take that long. And, and it also reminds us that hardness of heart is actually a choice. I mean, Jesus wouldn't have gotten on to them if they couldn't have helped it. Jesus looked at them and, and he, he didn't say you've lost the capacity for faith. He didn't talk about this existential idea of conviction and believing. He looked at them and said, why'd you do this with your heart, Butch? Why'd you do this with your heart, son? It's that hardness of heart almost feels like the bushes that Adam and Eve hid behind. They heard God coming and they hid. And, and, and the plaintive voice of God is not, get out here. The plaintive voice of God is, what has happened to you to make my footsteps scare you? What has happened to you, little dog, that makes the gentle hand that loves you cause you to flinch hardness of heart at least in relationship to God generally comes from unexpected unwanted disappointments um, tragic losses severe pain calluses begin to build up in our soul to protect the tender flesh that has been bruised Thus, all of the cliches that we've all lived with our whole life. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You know what? I've learned if I need a helping hand, I'm just going to look to the end of my own arm. And then the admonition, would you let yourself be loved again? These cliches come from somewhere, don't they? Easter tide is a season where the animating power of God embodies itself in Jesus and Jesus takes us, Carol, through a process, an archetypical process of naive orientation, tremendous disorientation, and then a mature reorientation. I love Steve, I think you were the one that introduced it to me from Rohr. Rohr, I don't know who he's quoting, but the wonderful quote the young person who doesn't weep is a barbarian. The old person who doesn't laugh is a fool. The old person who dries up cynically, calloused, recalcitrant, and thickened and hardened at life. Interestingly, and this is where I'll bring you to a close, and I think it's just a lovely resolve. And I hope, it is, I hope you like it as much as I did. I was preaching this to myself this morning, and I literally felt like that old preacher that said, Lord, take it easy on me. I'm an old man. I can't take it. About bless my own self. So it was good for me. I hope it's good for you. That was odd to say in this setting, but... You ought to try to do this. It's a lot of talking. Every now and then, things slip out that... It's, it's, it's a hazardous vocation, I'll tell you. To the ones he had just taken to task for their stubbornness. He just took them to task for their hardness of heart and their refusal to believe. What does he do? He told them... 
He scolded them because they were too stubborn to believe the ones who had seen him after he had been raised to life. He, they were too stubborn, hearts hardened, to believe the ones who had seen him. Okay, I get that. When I've lost Jesus, when I've lost God, when I'm lost faith, that really happy person that has love, has faith, have God, has God, has Jesus, man, sometimes they get on my nerves, right? When they're a little too happy about having what you've lost, aren't they annoying? So he told them, he got on to them because they were stubborn to believe the ones who had seen him. You know, it's like, if I don't have him, who the heck do you think you are? I'm not going to live through your experience. But listen to this. Man, this is good. He scolded them, and then he told them, go and share the good news with everyone. Now, that's a funny thing to tell these guys. She lost me. She found me. You lost me. She told you about me. And you wouldn't believe. Now you've found me and have had your own experience. What do I want you to do? Go tell other people. And the caveat is, guess what? They won't believe you either. And when they don't, won't you then have a capacity to be gracious to them? Because you didn't either when somebody told you. Ooh, that's a good lesson. But share your experience anyway. He told them to go tell others the good news of his resurrection. He tells them to go do for others what Mary Magdalene and the Emmaus-bound disciples had done for them. Share your experience. And when people reject you, you surely will be sympathetic to them but abide with them. Because community, spiritual community, is not a group of people who all share the same experience. Community is a group of people who love one another and give one another space for their own experiences. And know that the experience is going to eventually have to be yours. It can't be something that I give to you. In uh, this is what I wanted to close with. In John's gospel, John tells the story this way. John 20, verse 19. The disciples were afraid of the Jewish leaders. See, they weren't afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of the religious leaders. And on the evening of that same Sunday, okay, he, he was resurrected that morning, but they didn't know it. So they were afraid of the people that had been involved in his death and on the evening of that same Sunday, it doesn't take long for your walls to build. They lock themselves in a room. Man, the sacred text is beautiful if you can hear it speaking in your life. Tremendous loss caused them that night to lock themselves in a room and shut themselves off from life. Nothing's going to get in here again suddenly Jesus appeared in the middle of the group now that's one great thing about Jesus and why I believe in him a lot 
He walks through walls. And he touches even through calluses. Suddenly Jesus appeared in the middle of the group. He greeted them and he showed them his hands and his side. Lovely. He didn't float. He didn't glow. He didn't cast a positive vision. He showed them where he had been hurt. Best thing to do with hurting people is show them where you've been hurt. You want to really do well with hurting people. Don't show them how great everything is. Show them where you've been hurt. But when Jesus showed them where he'd been hurt, the good news is it wasn't red and infected. I guarantee you these were aptly healing wounds. So you're showing hope because you're not just showing wounds, you're showing healing wounds. And so he showed them his hands and his side. And when the disciples saw the Lord, I love this, they became very happy. They locked themselves in a room because they were afraid. And the New American Standard says that when Jesus came through their walls and thanked God, Jesus, everybody else needs to stay in their hula hoop and don't force themselves through the walls. But I'll tell you where Jesus has special order. He walks through walls. And when he walked through the walls, the first thing he said was, peace, peace. Whoo. When he walks through your walls and says, peace, showed him his hands inside, and they became very happy. After Jesus had greeted them again, he said, I'm sending you. Go share the good news. Every time somebody gets an experience of him coming through their walls in pain, he says, go tell others. And... I'm telling you, this is just, it just reads right. So they went and they told Thomas. And although Thomas the twin was one of the 12 disciples, he wasn't with the others when Jesus appeared to them. So they told him, we have seen the Lord. Thomas said, I'm going to have to see the scars and the prints for myself. Why do we call him Doubting Thomas. All he's asking for is what Jesus freely gave them. Take the doubting thing off. This is a good, critically thinking, healthy guy. Nothing doubting here. I mean, Jesus walks into their room. I mean, Thomas's only mistake is he missed the first Sunday night church service, right? That's the only mistake he made. Jesus walks into their room. Thomas isn't there. Jesus says, peace, shows them. First thing he does, peace, shows them his hands. They go tell Thomas, and Thomas says, I refuse to believe. I got to see his pain myself. I got to see those healing wounds myself. All he asked for was what Jesus freely gave. Sounds smart to me. I must see the nail scars in his hands, touch them with my finger. I must put my hand where the spear went into his side. And then listen to this. I will not believe unless I do this. Good. He didn't say, I don't believe. He said, I will not. Well, that's, that's exactly right. He wasn't with them. He didn't share their experience. An interesting thing is about them... 
they didn't rebuke him. They understood him because they had been right where he was. Because until they saw, they had big walls too. Let's see, where were we? We were in a room locked with walls. Jesus showed us his hands and side, and we were healed. Let's see, he wasn't there, he's got walls. He, okay. And a week passes. You can't impose a timeline on this experience. And this is, this is it. The same scripture says, and when the disciples were together again, a week later, actually eight days later, on a Monday night, this time Thomas was with them. And again, the doors were locked. And the Bible says the doors were locked because they were trying to keep the religious leaders out, but they couldn't keep Jesus out. And I'm telling you, there's tons of people in this Bible Belt and some of you here who have locked religion out and religious leaders like me out and organized religion out. But the good news is Jesus can walk through those walls. And he walks through the walls and he says again, peace be with you. And I love the fact that Thomas was there with them, which means this group of believers remained in tight fellowship with a man who wasn't a believer. And so when people say, why do you almost brag about the fact that we've got humanists and agnostics here? Because they are my brothers and sisters. And I'm sorry, this might sound presumptuous. I just, I don't know. I'm... I'm just still waiting on them to drink the coffee and see the prince. And I am so satisfied that their journey is different than mine. Craig, I don't know why some people are there one night and some people are there the next night. I'm just satisfied that at the right time, because all of us, our calluses are different, our walls are different, the locks we put on the doors are different. But at the right time, God will come to you through the calluses of your hurt, your cynicism, your questions, your defensiveness. And he won't come with a rebuke. He will just come and say, peace with you. And Thomas said, I got to have it. And Jesus said this. And Thomas said, my Lord, my God. And the disciples said. And we're just a community of believers and unbelievers. And you know what? You don't get this and stick with it. We'll go through these various cycles. That's why it's nice to stay with a community of people over a long... That's why it's nice, Steve, to dedicate your baby and 18 years later watch her graduate. Man, hadn't we, you and me, gone through losing him and finding him and losing him and finding him. And when I got him, I'm propping you up and you got him, you're propping me up. Boy, if you can stick it out with some folk for a few years and have that experience then you know what a fellowship of believers is really, really, really about. So the lesson is take care of your heart. Be careful with hardness. Be careful with other people's heart. Share the good news and then leave them with your journey. Stay in community with people who are in different places in their journey, even if they don't believe. Listen to other people's experiences. Don't be cynical. And if you've locked religion and religious, religious leaders out, give us another chance. What was it Abraham Lincoln said? I'd rather be fooled. I'd rather believe and be fooled a hundred times than ever develop the heart of a cynic. And 
I'm sure that's true of all relationships, but I'm not Dr. Phil. I'm Pastor Stan. I know it's true of God. Keep your heart open and tender. And just at the right time, he'll come through the walls and the calluses. Can you say amen? Was that as good as I thought it was? That was just good. Congratulations again to our graduates. Go be good to one another. God bless you. See you Wednesday night for Midrash.